left thinking about the enormous breadth of things that people and are heir to, the things that you know that things that people have could be this, could be that. And the the incredible way in which, I'm sure it's true for you as it is for me, when I hear about something, I, I feel it. Uh, but how would that be if it were if it were I? You know, and that. Uh, and and sometimes there are incredible things like, of the flu. You know, uh, it's like suddenly life gets more dangerous than it is. Who thought about the flu? But life is so. Tenuous, you don't know, by crossing the street. By, um, I told a number of people since last week that I had told the strawberry story last week about the monk who gets chased by a tiger and is hanging off a cliff by a vine and uh, a mouse is gnawing the vine. And that, you know, more than ever, ever, that seems to me to be... That seems exactly right. There's the story of our lives. You know, we're all hanging on a vine, and we don't know when the mouse is going to take the, the last bite of it today, tomorrow. If we knew, you know, if someone gave us a day, there's, a, there's like the expression, uh, so-and-so's days are numbered. When we say that about something, people say, my, well, you know, my, my father or my, my partner has just been diagnosed with X and the doctor has given him or her uh, X amount of time. You don't know. When my father had had his cancer diagnosis, my father is gone for 30 years now, but when he had his diagnosis, we went to see the specialist in his kind of cancer. And uh, when we left that specialist's office, I, I I thought it was quite dramatic. The doctor had said to him, well, you know, you're going to die of this disease, meaning to say we don't have a treatment for it, which you already do anyway. But we left the doctor's office, and he said to me, I think that was rude what he said to me. He doesn't know. You know, I could cross the street right now and get hit by a bus. He doesn't know what I'm going to die of. You know, to hold someone in respect and, and in, you know, not even in this, this poor doctor in that particular specialty at that time was probably burdened by the fact that in his particular specialty people didn't live. And there's all kinds of ways that people figure out to cope with a burden. I was thinking as... Um, we sat in those five minutes or so that people were saying, I was thinking um, that from time to time I remember Gwen saying that the most important response uh, to the question, uh, how are you, is I couldn't be better, is that remains one of those stories that's in my mind. Not anybody could be better. 
That doctor couldn't have been better under those circumstances. If I remember that nobody could be better, very few people get up in the morning thinking, mm, I'm going to really ruin somebody's life today. <laughs> I don't think we do that. I just, I mean, I think that they're probably, if that happens in a person's mind, it's an aberration of neurology or a, a shortcoming of how people were brought up. But by and large, we don't take pleasure in hurting people. Is this recording or not? It is. Okay. Well, I didn't say anything that I didn't want to record, but but I think that that's probably the most important thing. I keep remembering that particular line. It, they couldn't be better. Uh, when my mind gets disturbed by, or is about to get disturbed, or is being disturbed by something that someone or some group is doing, if I think to myself, it's the only thing that could happen now. You know, but it shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be happening. That that's uh, that's really such an odd view. It shouldn't be happening. It is happening, which means it was the only thing under the circumstances, given all the karmic conditions, that could have happened. It's actually a piece of wisdom. So see what I actually thought I was going to talk about. I will actually. It's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. It's really all, if we just really knew how difficult life was, we'd be kinder. If, some, if everybody in here had a number, somebody told me the other day, they figured it out. They said, okay, we're uh, seven, someone who's my age, said we're 76, so let's say we have another 10 years because we're now in health. Okay, 10 years, 86. Anybody here is more than 86? No. I'm going places these days where I look around and I know I'm the oldest person there. It's the strangest thing, you know. Except in my exercise class where I'm proud of it. I think, whoa, you know. I hope they see that. <laughs> the mind is so peculiar. One of the things about quartet, I want to talk about quartet. How, who saw quartet? Was it wonderful? Yes. What was the best thing, Vicky? The soundtrack was great. So, quartet is a is a is a story. It's a made up story, but it's a story of uh, old people living in a retirement home for retired musicians. So, the soundtrack is extraordinary. They're playing wonderful music all the time because even if a dialogue is going on that you hear in this room, in the next room someone is playing the trout quintet or something else in the other room or something else or a little. Baccarini, or it, it was it, the the music is wonderful, but here are these old people. What did you like about the old people? Yeah. I liked watching Maggie Smith's song and her stubbornness. Yeah, I like the Maggie Smith is such a consummate oh, actor. Yes. Anyway, but the thing about one of the things that I loved about it is that these uh, old people. Didn't get to be, uh, we, you know. I, I just finished reading a book about mellow with age and ripening with time. They were mellow. They were the same kind of personalities as they'd been before. Maybe Maggie Smith mellowed over the course of the time with the arising of wisdom, but she hadn't mellowed before then. I was struck by the fact that everybody was lively, that the kind of liveliness that enlivens a life. And even 
even uh, pettiness, which I thought that I, you know, hopeful to be over by the time I'm in such a place, may it not come to pass too soon. But uh, look at that for a superstitious thing. Can't believe I said that. Anyway. <laughs> but they are like regular people. They are juicy people. They're not dried up. They haven't, it's not nothing to them, and they haven't risen above it all. Uh, the diva is jealous that the other person might have a better place on the program than she and sing better. And this one is still nursing an old wound that 20 years ago she didn't marry him or he left her or something or other. And this one has something against that one. And so they're like regular people, and they, and even those of them that are now uh, not completely uh, keeping up mentally with everybody else, keep up with the singing. That was so, that story, which you probably know from other people, that people who are musicians play long after their thought processes don't hold up so well because it's written in their neurons. So here are old people, and really old, and that's, that's not dubbed. You see in the, in the credits at the end, that which are so beautiful because they show you so-and-so playing the cello 30 or 40 years before when they were the cellos for the British Broadcasting Company. And so they have real musicians playing. And they fall in love with each other and they take care of each other. And for me, the, the most important thing, I loved, uh, I loved the way in which there's a quartet that in the end sings together that had sung together it's 30 years prior or something like that. And it's a great big deal that these four people are there and sing together. One of the four people is Maggie Smith. Another one is a, an actress whose name I've forgotten this morning. Pauline but Collins. What's her name? Pauline Collins. Pauline Collins. She was fabulous. She plays the part of an aging singer who's, not, who's uh, senile who walks in a, in a funny gate and carries a huge overstuffed purse with her wherever she goes that has all her stuff in it. She has to run in and get her stuff and bring her stuff back out. And she doesn't catch on to what's going on. And uh, she's just a few beats behind everybody mentally all the time. And they are so kind to her. They make enormous space to see her as Sissy, the wonderful singer and the lovely person not Sissy, the person with Alzheimer's. They see the parts of her that are beautiful and functioning. Many years ago, 20 years ago probably, uh, I was visiting on the East Coast, and I, I realized just before I was going to tell you this story, I'd thought of it and wrote down tell that story, but I'm going to tell it without the name of the person. I visited um, some people living in uh, a communal uh, a communal living arrangement a multi a multi apartment old house in a college community back east it could have been like berkeley that kind of college community with a big house that's now four apartments but it wasn't here it was on the east coast in one of those apartments was an elderly um couple uh both in their 90s at that point and uh, uh one of those two people was completely current with thinking, and the other one was not. And they lived in this communal living with a number of other people, 
another, another several other couples, and I had dinner with them. And um, I watched the way in which the one person who really wasn't together anymore would make a comment, and everybody would manage that comment into the conversation. There was no sense that it wasn't usable. It was, it was in a, you know, uh, I, I don't mean to demean it, but people use the comments that they said, he said that off the wall. They'd be not so relevant to what was going on or not so pertinent, but somehow somebody would scoop it up and make it relevant into the conversation. And I remember, and we went out to the e- for the evening. We went out to hear a presentation by some graduate student uh, in the field that this person had been a great, celebrated person in that field. And after the presentation, this person had some things to say that didn't sound so pertinent to me. Everybody scooped them up and made them relevant and put them back. And I remember it happened twenty five years ago, and I remember it as clearly as I think I I did at the time. Somebody said to me last week, this is connected to that, although, but I've been thinking about it a lot. When when we were leaving last week, somebody came up and I had just told the story about somebody uh, carrying my suitcase up a flight of stairs and that somebody had always materialized to do a kindness to me. And somebody, maybe that person is here, said, you know, it reminded me, six or eight years ago, I was in France, and I also had a problem with carrying up a staircase, and somebody came from behind me and helped me carry up the stairs. The person who told it to me is much younger than I now, and was much younger eight years ago. And I thought to myself, uh, here's a, this person is now taking out of her memory bank a 15-second event that happened eight years ago, not in a dire situation, because it wasn't that she was, as far as I could tell, in some place of real extreme need. It was just a niceness that somebody did there. And I thought, wow, look at that, how a kindness writes itself into your neurons. How many things happen to us every day? I don't know how many billions of things happen to us in the course of a week or a month. And we don't remember all of them. My college roommate will say to me, remember the time we did X, Y, Z? And it wasn't 15 seconds. It was maybe a whole day. Remember the time we did this and that? And I don't. But uh, uh, an event that writes itself into your mind, wrote itself into this person's mind, it's a 15-second event eight years ago, but it goes into the file in the mind that says people are kind. You can depend on people to help you out. Imagine if you had a whole file cabinet of them what kind of a person you would be in your life. First of all, I think you'd be shaped by them. And you'd be the kind of person that was looking out for who could I help. But I thought that that was the thing about that movie last night, that they were real people with real with jealousies and desires and vanities and um, they minded being old. They did mind being old. There wasn't anything about, this is a lovely time of life. <laughs> you know, I, it, it's not lovely. It's just what it is, you know. It's, it's, sometimes it's lovely, sometimes it's not. <laughs> sometimes it's very hard, sometimes it's not, but it's just what it is. And I was thinking about all the pre, um, um, 
uh, what do you call it? Uh, um, <clears throat> all the views that we have about uh, different things, like, uh-oh, um, it's bad to get old. You have to stay youthful at all, at all costs. That uh, uh, I read a book by uh, Sherry Anderson that'll be out in print uh, this summer called, um, I wanted to tell you the name of it. Oh, Inside Stories for Aging with Grace. So I read the book, and it's a sweet book, and it uh, talks about groups that she's been conducting for, I don't know, half a dozen years now, of older people. I was a little dismayed because she said there's older and older and old. She said there's just old, and then there's old, old. So, uh, alas, I have to talk there before it's in print. says that old is 55 to 75, and old, old. So, how many people here are over 75? Oh, you're going to be next year. <laughs> you just one hand behind. You're just one behind me. You know that. <laughs> no, but you know. I anyway. Leaving that aside, uh, may it not have changed my opinion of Sherry's book. Sherry's book is very is very interesting, particularly for her talking about what are the ideas that your culture or your family or your anything <coughs> has given you about becoming old. And if she asked a group of people, they they had numbers of answers. What was not good about being old, and internalized a lot of energy about it at all costs. Shouldn't get old, but we do. You know, we do. We get old. And when I started to study Dharma, they said that one of the things that happens, one of the views that the Buddha had that changed his life, that caused him to think, whoa was he had an image of old age, sickness, and death. But I think to myself, I, you know, I guess, as a, far be it for me to criticize all the a rubric that's been part of Buddhism for so long, but a lot of people, they get sick before they have old age. It's not just old age. Some people are old, 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 and then they die, and it's not so suffering. And besides, the whole thing of Buddhism is there's no one who dies. So actually, death is not that all big of a deal. I mean, there's certainly a, a corporeal body that dies, but if I really know, to the degree that I hope I begin to know more and more, that there isn't a separate eye that dies, as these connections that change on a real-life basis when I'm not in this life anymore. But, I mean, I, I, I won't be there to answer the telephone, but, you know, my, my children and my grandchildren will remember me. I'll live in people's minds. I remember what the inside of my mother's hand feels like, felt like. And she's been gone for 50 years. I remember what she smelled like, and she's been gone for 50 years. I'm not sure about the, you know, that... And friends of mine are dying. There's a... I, got a, I guess I was thinking about this a lot because I got an email. I got a Christmas card this week by some friends who wrote their Christmas card very late. Um, <laughs> say, this, uh, this letter is a time to review the year and to be thankful that we're doing more than standing upright on two feet. These are friends of ours who we've known for forever, so they're our age. 
we've lost some friends this year, which is bound to happen at our age. And every day we look at each other and say, what a ride this has been. I love that. That's the whole thing out of it. One of the other things I didn't, I'm hiding it a little bit because they're friends of mine in which one of the people is not so completely there as used to be. But there they are, and it's not part of the letter. I just happen to know that. But the letter is part of what they're doing and who's come to visit and what's new in their garden and how they've managed to put in a, a water-sparing plants to keep the garden going. Um, it's not a bad thing to get old. It has a bad rap, but, uh, you know, uh, to think about... Oh, that's why I thought about this. the name of this book, Inside Stories About Aging with Grace. I actually think that we need inside stories about parenting with grace and inside stories about being an adolescent with grace. The whole life is how to do it with grace. You know, Why should it be harder? Because you're old. Actually, it should be easier because you're smarter by that time. You have a few things down in terms of wisdom. Why? So that's interesting. I, you know, I... I, I uh, I'm out of step. Other people are... It's, it's now like a whole thing about talking about aging with grace and the dharma of aging. I think the dharma is the same all the time. How are we going to deal with this now? This is a wonderful book. This is Daniel Klein called Travels with Epicurus. I didn't know a lot about... How many people here know a lot about Epicurus? Epicurus was a, was a Greek philosopher whose creed was what Epicurus mainly had on his mind was the question of how to live the best possible life, especially considering that we only have one of them. That's a little bit different from the Buddhist. But Epicurus did not believe in an afterlife. Uh, what he believed was... Uh, how do you make them? What he thought about is how did we make the most of this life? Uh, and he knew that this was a starting point for his thinking because it raises the more troublesome and perplexing questions of what's a happy life? What pleasures are truly gratifying and enduring and which are fleeting and lead to pain? Thus, the monumental questions of why and how we often thwart ourselves from attaining happiness. Goes on to talk, I was surprised about this about his his idea was, uh, Daniel Klein said, he had sort of a 60s hippie idea. You should live on the least about uh, that you need and just really make it easy. Sit with your friends, hang out, talk about how life has been. Don't, uh, it's the opposite of 1,000 things that I want to see before I die. <laughs> he said, throw out all the bucket lists, 1,000 things I have to accomplish. He said, after all the 1,000 places I yet have to visit, he said, after the 10th exotic place, you think, well, you know, it'd be pretty exotic to stay home for a while and <laughs> hang out with my friends or my family. Or Epicurus believed that old age was the pinnacle of life, the best that it gets. It's not the young man who should be considered fortunate, but the old man, he says, who has lived well, because the young man in his prime wanders much by chance, vacillating in his belief while the old man is docked in the harbor, having safeguarded his true happiness. So he goes to uh, Daniel, uh, oh, he goes on to say about the, the, uh, the idea of uh, 70, is the 50, 70 is the new 50, 
I said, forget about it. He said, 70 is the new 70. You know, that's what we are. You know, that, uh, he said, if you're always striving, I know I'm going to take one more thing, I'm going to learn one more language, I'm going to you know, build up the muscles, I'm going to this, I'm going to that. He says, there's no rest for the striver. Just be, you know, that's really true. Anytime, there's no rest for the striver. I mean, there's a, certainly a place in life to hope to develop one's competency in this and that. But to feel lacking... I've been thinking about that recently. I don't want to feel lacking in anything. Like I haven't yet done this, or I haven't yet uh, developed uh, unshakable equanimity. Now this is out on the internet, all over the place. But you know, I haven't. Um, I think wiser all the time and kinder. I hope all the time, but not unshakable. There's no rest for the striver. Just behind the completion of each goal of our life achievement bucket list looms another goal and then another. There's no time left for a calm and reflective appreciation of our twilight years. No deliciously long afternoon sitting with friends or listening to music or musing about the story of our lives. We'll never get another chance to do that if not now. I actually like that. Anyway, at the end of this book, it's a good book, by the way. It's called uh, Travels with Epicurus. He decides to go to uh, Greece for six months or so and live on an island and uh, write this book and muse about his life. And, uh, of course, he was doing something at that time. It wasn't just musing. But, uh, but he's a writer. That's what he's done. He's written numbers of books in his life. And he's speculating about doesn't feel like doing that more, but he did write this little book. Then at the end, he said, the last chapter, I, I thought, wow, you know, we've been talking about mindfulness is taking over the world. He has this last chapter of this book called, it's called On Growing Old Mindfully. So, whoa. Maybe that Buddhist notion, he says, of mindfulness will lead to the most valuable way of leaving a, living a good and authentic old age. Perhaps whatever we do, we must try to uh, remain mindful that we are old. This is the last stage of life in which we can be fully conscious, that our time in this stage is limited and constantly diminishing, and that we have extraordinary opportunities in this stage that we will never, we never had before, we'll never have again. Perhaps if we are as mindful as we possibly can be of where we are in life right now, the most fulfilling options of how to live these years will reveal themselves to us, not by rigorously following the prescriptions of the wise philosophers, yet by being ever mindful of their wisdom. By simply being aware of old age options, we can make authentic choices for how we want to conduct this period of life. We can try the ideas of philosophers on facade, see how they fit, and do it or not do it. This may be what it means to grow old philosophically. But one of the things that he said is he's uh, trying to practice leisure in his life. And I think about how mindfulness is actually a form of leisure moment to moment. It doesn't mean hanging out. It means not having the thoughts and the decisions go faster than the mindful awareness of where they're going. I thought, probably if I could write, maybe we'll do it in the next couple of weeks together, the briefest, briefest handbook of what's the Dharma. 
If life is so complicated, life is so challenging, how can we be anything but kind? Everybody is... Um, I couldn't be better, neither can anyone else. Everyone is doing the best they can. I went by some store yesterday where the television was on, and the television yesterday afternoon was showing coverage of a um, police hunt in Southern California. I don't know how it ended. Oh, my. So it was very disturbing because when I listened, the little piece that I heard, the commentators were saying, they had, they had commentators and they had experts talking uh, with the commentators about what kind of a person would do this. And the thing that they kept saying was, he thinks he's right. You know, he's got a cause. He thinks he's right. And his whole raison d'etre, his whole life, depends on till the last minute thinking that he's right. I think everybody thinks they're right. You know? Uh, when, you know, everybody's doing the best they can. Um, sometimes maladaptively. But um, know, how did you feel about it? I felt so badly that this whole thing happened. You know, that uh, it just seems... I feel really badly also that it was on TV as a national spectacle, like live movies. You know, it's somebody's life and death. And really, it was being introduced as, well, we're now watching what might be the final hours of so-and-so's life. It was like watching an electrocution, I think, you know, where you know what the end is. I thought, I don't want to do that, you know. In L.A., they had that as live feed on instead of the President's State of the Union address. No. Yeah, they showed that instead. Because it was happening at the same time. It's very, it's very, uh, I don't know, well, I don't know. I don't know means I thought of something, I don't know if I want to say it, but once I've done that, 30 <laughs> years before CNN, before cable news, I uh, was on a three-hour bus one time going from uh, uh, Snowmass, Colorado, down back to uh wherever my charter flight to come back to California was. And behind me were two people who were executives of a cable news company about to go on live, talking about the future of news. And they said, we're going to make news entertainment. And uh, at the time, I didn't quite get the whole meaning. of. I mean, I understood what they were saying, but over the years, I, I worry or I think about how it so makes us, I don't know, no, I don't want to say that. I worry that it might be producing a population of people who think violence is normal and uh, that watching violence is a good thing for you to do. Or The Buddha said, whatever you put your mind to and whatever it contemplates, by that will it be shaped. I don't think it's good for you to watch that sort of stuff all day. What are we going to say? I don't know if Siddhartha is an accurate portrayal of the Buddha's life, but you know, he he looked for one adventure after another, and at the end of his life, he just sat at the door and just watched it, 
watch the river flow. I mean, that's, that it's all like uh, uh, T.S. Eliot's about, you know, seeking and come, coming home to yeah. exactly. Understanding yeah. what it is to be at home and be at peace with yourself. And I, I think that's a beautiful image of aging. I think the whole idea to be able to do it with grace. Yeah. So in this in this mythical handbook that maybe we'll write together, uh, we have to say I would really like to say that we do have the choice. That 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 uh, phone message that I heard this morning that said "Have a wonderful day" means that you can put your attention here or here at any juncture, any number of junctures during the day. It's like you're driving along. I notice this, uh, my husband has a newer car than I, so I see that he has in his, uh, in his Honda Fit, he's got a very good GPS, better than my GPS. The mind suddenly thinks, oh, I need this GPS, it's better than mine. <laughs> because that's the way, my, but anyway, what his GPS shows is when you're coming to some juncture in the road, it shows you the road that you should continue on, and it also shows you the road that you shouldn't continue on. You know, we were we were driving together somewhere else, somewhere in the South Bay the other day, and there's one of those places, I said, oh, look at this. It not only says bear left, uh, the audio tells you bear left, and a mile bear left, and a half a mile bear left, and a quarter of a mile, so they told you that three times now, bear left. <laughs> but you can see on the picture, also, it shows you what happens if you bear right, you're going to go over to the Richmond Bridge. So I see that it shows you visually this is where you'll go if you don't, you know, if you bear that. But forward forward this way, you come out in San Francisco. I think so many times during the day, in any day, we come to a juncture where it says, you could get annoyed at this right now. <laughs> you want to, like, uh, have a little commotion in the mind. How many people, when we sat this morning, had a moment of, about something? Yeah. So that's, that's a perfectly normal thing to have a moment of, something is annoying. So uh, it goes by, and it's like, it's not only annoying, but it says, you want to chew on me a little bit. You can't do anything about it. Whatever it is, you're sitting here. You can't do anything about it, except gnaw on it a little bit and flame it up low on it, get a little bit bigger flame. And the mind does that. I mean, they kept saying, just in this brief time that I'm in the whatever store I was in while the TV was on, it says, stay tuned. You know, I'm not in Los Angeles. I'm not in any personal danger. I, you know, I, it's it's not good for you to stay tuned to that. Uh, but why give actually that impression that I I need that? That makes you a little frightened. Like if there was a tornado coming to San Francisco. You know, when, I, when I lived in Kansas, you watched the television when there was a storm outside, and they showed you maps. When and they'd show you. Did you have them, by the way? In North Dakota, South Dakota. So they show you X's on the map and what direction it's going. So you know if a tornado is coming to you, you you get in your car and you ride perpendicular to the path of the tornado. But if it's not here, I don't have to know about it. And it just makes irritability in the mind. How will we... What, the, that I thought to myself, maybe the other thing that goes in the book is the intention, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Because I think all three words mean something. When you're peaceful, the mind is relaxed. When you're happy, which means the mind has energy in it. and is uh, A number of people said this morning, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to my, for my life. 
to be able to end up grateful. That'd be a great thing. I love the I love the card from my friends who say we say to each other every day, "What a ride we've had!" It's a really a great thing, especially if we have friends who are dying. It's a privilege to get old. Uh, and people that have that joke, they say, "Well, it beats the alternative." Absolutely, you know. I mean, you can smell roses if you're alive, you know. But but you can make that mistake of just out of some sort of habit of the mind to titillate itself. Well, I could just think about that annoyance a little bit. Or what were you going to say, Susan? I just got this idea about a Buddhist GPS that says, "Stay on the eightfold path." <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm not sure we couldn't do that. Uh, no, I don't think we could write it. But no, no, keep that in mind. That's a very good idea. You know why? Because I've already had, I now have the name of that book in my mind. A couple of years ago, I told someone if I write another book, it's going to be called, Ad, but I haven't written it yet. So you know what the name of the book is? Recalculating. <laughs> That's, it, was a, it was a title waiting for a book at least an article don't you think recalculating I accidentally I'm going over the bridge so where can I make a turn and come back I don't want to do this this is going in the wrong direction this is not going where I want to go this is not contributing to my well-being and the well-being of others before contemplating doing something you should reflect is this for my well-being and the well-being of others? So, really, how to be, how to look at the part of things. This is the one more topic that I wanted to talk about because I know that uh, I wanted to say something about women and women in Buddhism because tomorrow is the billion women rising day. How many people are doing something about it? What are you going to do, Susan? I think stand there and wave. Uh, I, I wanted to show you this book. Ten years ago, 20 years ago, more like 20, there was a, a, a sense of there aren't enough women represented in, uh, in Buddhism, that the image of the Buddha is a patriarchal image. And this is a book of uh, uh, pictures of pictures of, of uh, Buddha images that are women, uh, either Kuan Yin's or something that's definitely a female Buddha. It's a beautiful book. It's just come out. And I had it open to the page with, with Deepa Ma, but I can't find it because my... It's all right. I know it by heart. Uh, so I just wanted to show it to you in case anybody wants to see it. They're beautiful women images uh, why don't we pass it around and then you can look at it and here is Deepa Ma and Deepa Ma was the teacher of my teachers her name was something else but uh, she was the mother of Deepa 
So that's how you get a name, Deepa Ma. Uh, she was the mother of Deepa, and people called her Deepa Ma for all of Deepa's age. I met her when she came to this country to teach. She was a primary teacher of Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Cornfield. And uh, 20 years ago, at least, maybe more, they brought her to the United States kind of um, guru on tour and uh, brought her to each of the cities where they they had groups of people who were studying. And she stayed at my house in Kenfield uh, just because I, I had a, a room to put her up. And she stayed with her daughter Deepa, her grandson Rishi, who was with her, and her father, the father-in-law of Deepa, who was a translator. And uh, she stayed in my house for a week, and people came from all over, and she taught in my living room every night. And uh, people said, did you ask her a question? I didn't. Um, I listened to what she said to other people. I didn't, I didn't have a question to ask about her. And the truth is, uh, I, what I don't remember is any particular answers that she had to any particular question. I remember the way of being that she had. I remember how it was to be in a room with her, which was a pleasure, you know, that she did not contribute to any kinds of... The, the, the room was comfortable if she was in it. The, the, the quote from Deepa Ma in, the woman's book, in that women's picture book is the answer that she gave to someone who said, what's in your mind? What, what, are you, what, what are the contents of your mind? What's there? And she said, well, most of the time there's only three things. There's concentration and loving kindness and peace. That's what's there. And I thought that, you know, she she seemed to me so incredibly um, at ease. She had views about things. Uh, I remember driving her from downtown San Francisco back to Marin after some luncheon that someone had given in her honor. And we came up to visit Arrow Street to the place where it comes to the top of Knob Hill. And all of a sudden there's a place where you come up and you look down, and, the, and, the, and it's a very intense, precipitous ride down. And here also, and here also, and there's cars behind you. And who knows? You know, I, and back in that day, I was probably driving a shift car too. So anyway, I come to the top of that hill, and uh, I'm driving, and she's sitting next to me, and the translator uh, is in the back. And I said, uh, "Please tell uh, Deepa Ma." that this is one of the most famous tourist places, spots in the whole Bay Area, because you can look in these four ways. So he explains us. And she looked and looked and looked. Okay. That was it. So, you know, she didn't say, wow. She didn't say, ah. She didn't say, eek. She didn't say anything. So then I thought, well, see, I'm never going to be like that. You know, that... Uh, but, you know, and, and, and this is... I, I admired her enormously. She was... She, she was much older than I and raised in an entirely different culture and as a woman in an entirely different culture where women were not so much prominently a part of a conversation. What I admired her about her was her tremendous equanimity and the tranquility was part of it. But tremendous equanimity, she just didn't, the, he just didn't feel rushed with her or worried with her.
I think that's what happens if you don't have an agenda in your mind other than goodwill. What's in my mind is peace and uh, concentration and loving kindness. The other story about Deepama is... um, Oh, here's Deepa. Uh, Sharon wrote about her on the back of this book. Deepa Ma was the most loving person I ever met. Reading these reflections of Deepa Ma rouses the faith that being in her presence always did. Uh, a mind at peace and a heart of complete lovingness is a human possibility. When she came to my house uh, and she arrived, uh, the people who drove her walked her up to my house, and some of you might know I live in um, I, I live in a house that requires going up three flights of concrete steps to get it's on it's on a hill the house she had to come up these three flights of stairs and uh, come into my kitchen and at the time we had a very large akita that do you know what the, an akita is it's a very large male Akita, so it's particularly large, big head, looks kind of like a bear, big tail. She was a very small woman, smaller than I am. And she came into the kitchen where the dog lived, and he stood up to meet her. Uh, And they were bad on on a level. And most people were a little bit daunted by him when they came in. You know, he, was, he wouldn't have done anything, but he was looked daunting. And she came in and walked right up to him and put his, her hands on his head like that and gave him a blessing. Oh, yeah. oh my so she didn't have to teach anything that week. That's all she had to do is come to my house and do a blessing on the dog and not get excited about the hill. And I thought, wow. And she was, she was, well, I'm about to say she was a regular woman. She was a woman. She was, she had been married. She had two daughters. In one year, her, one of her daughters died and her husband died. And um, at that point, she was so overwhelmed with grief. She was desperate to do something. She was middle-aged at that point. And she, someone told her to take up meditation. And she became a student of, um, oh, let's see, who was her teacher first? And then she, then she studied in, um, in uh, Burma. Uh, Manindra. Manindra was the first teacher. And then she went on to Burma and studied there and became hugely accomplished as a meditator. And was a main teacher of Sharon and Joseph and Jack and people who came through Calcutta. My husband remembers that she liked Mrs. Paul's fish sticks (laughs) and Sara Lee coffee cake. We had a whole freezer full of Mrs. Paul's fish sticks. And uh, at, every day at noon, different parts of the t- uh, of the of the uh, I guess her Indian connections would would come, but a community of people would come with a huge Indian food meal to set up every day at noontime, and then every night at uh, tea time we had something like Mrs. Paul's fish sticks and and. Uh, 
Sarah coffee cake. And she died some years ago, but... Um, But the idea that we could actually do that, I, I want to go back and at least end with the idea of making a conscious choice to train the mind. This is why if we make our you know, eight-page handbook, I'd like to actually to invite you, because I'm going to do it this weekend, to try to say, here, a lot of people have been here talking about Dharma for 10 years, 20 years. If you had a 20-page handbook, and no looking it up, don't go look it up somewhere, just out of your own memory. What would you like to say if somebody said you can say a few things that, are, that you think you have relevantly learned that are in there from the Dharma? Because we're all different. You see what it is that you would say. I would say that I think the mo- perhaps the most important instruction of the Eightfold Path is wise effort. That it's the undersung hero, unsung hero of the Eightfold Path. We talk all the time about the ethical precept, trying to live wisely and kindly and not hurt people and uh, wise action, wise livelihood, wise speech. And about the, the uh, uh, cultivation of knowledge, wise understanding, wise aspiration. But the three mind-training disciplines, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration, there's a way in which we talk a lot about mindfulness and concentration. Concentration leads to mindfulness. Mindfulness uh, deepens concentration as if the whole action is there. But I think the whole action is a step before that where the mind, the attention either gets gets placed on developing concentration or mindfulness or not. It either makes the effort to go uh, in the direction of what we aspire or goes in the wrong direction. So it says that there are four aspects to wise effort. Uh, Noticing, the four noticings. You notice uh, uh, if the presence, um, if wholesome states are present in the mind, like generosity and kindness and love and forgiveness, uh, in the movie last night, there's a, part, there's a point where uh, Maggie Smith is encouraging the man who was once her lover years before, who's still mad at her. She said, how about uh, forgiven for, uh, how about he said something, she says, how about uh, uh, something, something. She said, how about forgive and forget? I said, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> so, you know, so, but how about... But how about forgiveness? It's a very big piece. How about forgiving one's life for being the way it is? How about forgiving this or that? Or I'm thinking about uh, the people that I told you the story where they were generous enough to make the conversation wide enough for whatever this person said to be relevant. That's a huge piece of generosity. And it's also giving up any annoyance that this person has stepped out of the realm of what makes sense in that conversation. It's like they made it, and I I don't think they talked about it together. I think they had a consensual understanding that for the duration of so-and-so's life, we're going to make the conversation wide enough to be relevant. You'd have to not have (coughs) a fixed view of how things should be. 
I think about that. that, that I, I always see that's why I need hands free. I always think any view that says it has to be different from how it is, it shouldn't be like this, is already a, a troublesome view. It means that my mind looks like my hand and that it's all rumpled up. It is like that. Can't do it. Somebody becomes senile, they become senile. They become physically limited, they're physically limited. They become sick, they're sick. They become this, that, that. That's just what happened. And I think when we say it shouldn't have happened, what we actually mean is, I wish it hadn't happened. I wish it were otherwise. And it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with wishing it were otherwise, except if it leads to, it has to be otherwise. I wish it were otherwise, but it's not. And to be able to notice that, I mean, not, not rise above it, to be able to be honest about it. I wish I could. It'll come up, well, anyway, but I, I, oops, no, I wanted to say something else. I think in the peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, it means that each time I'm in a place in the road, oh, I was going to tell you the four things. Noticing if there's wholesome in the mind and keeping them in. Noticing if there's not wholesome in the mind and cultivating them. Noticing that there is unwholesome in the mind, like... <laughs> There's such a pull in the mind to let me just chew this over a little bit. It's such a juicy bit of annoyance, and I'm right, and they're wrong, and they, I, I, in some way I'll let them know about that, and they'll suffer. It's so bizarrely, um, what would you call it? It's, it seems like the intuitive thing to do, but it's so not valuable. It's so not only doesn't help the situation, but it pollutes one's own mind if you waited a little bit. Like give us a little time. The, the, the mind is in peace. Why would it stir up a war? I love that word commotion, a mind without commotion. And noticing the absence in the mind of unwholesome feelings. Say, wow, this is peace. This is great. I'm just like Deepa Ma. That's wonderful. It's a big turkey. It's spring. It's a good time for the big turkeys to start coming around and spreading the tails. Okay, it is 11. I, th- I need to be in San Rafael by 11.30, so we need to finish. But that, let's start from there next week. Come, come prepared with one statement, one thing that you heard in the course of all your Dharma practice or one anecdote, I learned this and this and this, that changed you. And we'll we'll actually do them together. That's more fun. I want to tell you that Serena is in the back, and you have this incomparable opportunity to <laughs> sign up if you have not for the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas. We are about forty people away from having raised a million dollars. Forty people away. So it's uh yeah either we'll do it March third oh March third write down come on March third in the afternoon and we'll have a party here it's going to be great uh, but either on March third bring people who can do that or if you haven't I don't want to know who hasn't but uh, think about it think about it. because by the way it's it's not going to last forever this incomparable opportunity because it can't last forever because it's a three year pledge. So if you want to use a three-year option, it has to start now because in six months it's going to be a two-year option because we need the money to build the building, so it can't be infinite. So now is your time. I sound like one of those people on TV. If you send now, you get two pepper grinders. But if you send...